0: we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Courtney, we're back in the virtual studio.
1: Hello. Yes, it's good to be here, seeing you on the screen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a different experience, but uh, it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: it's, it's, good for, it's good for when we have guests that aren't in Perth because yeah. we can really, like, broaden our horizons.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, we can speak to a more diverse range of people and mm-hmm. um, people from other states and I guess overseas. I don't think we've had an overseas guest yet. No,
1: but we should do that, though. We'll, yeah, we'll find I'm someone.
0: Sure it, yeah, I'm sure it'll happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so today we're having a chat with a gentleman by the name of Damien Lenayne. Uh, from the University of Newcastle, um, and yeah, he's a really fascinating guy, as you as people will, will hear shortly. Um, but yeah, what were your uh, impressions? Obviously, we'll talk about it a bit more <laughs> at the end. But
1: yeah, so uh, I actually um, before we uh, had the conversation, I did a bit of a Google, and I, I googled his name, and there was quite a lot of stuff on the internet about him. And I was like, this must not be the person that I'm talking to today because <laughs> there was so much stuff. And um, uh, when I went onto uh, his website, because he has one, he has all of his story there um, and he has a list of accomplishment, ac- accomplishments and things like that. And it just got me very excited for the conversation that uh, is in this episode today. So he, he's a very interesting man with a very, very interesting story. I'm not sure whether we should give away too much, though, in this introduction.
0: No, no, I think we can have a bit of a chat at the end. And uh, I think Damien very eloquently um, explains exactly what he's been through and what he's achieved. So, yeah, we'll leave it up to him. Sounds good.
2: men's one
0: yeah okay Okay, cool um yeah all right well let's uh let's get get into it (laughs) it's um it's great to have you on the podcast damien thanks for joining us as you take a drink there sorry (laughs) (laughs) thanks thanks for having me yeah (laughs) that's great yeah so you you were just mentioning um to us there that your podcast experience is, is limited to ear hustle do you want to tell us a bit about ear hustle whilst we're talking about that yeah so um just about what the show is about or my experiences with them yeah so i'm i'm familiar with it but i I haven't listened to it i am not yeah so yeah i think people would be interested to know a bit more about it
2: yeah, fair enough. So um Ear Hustle was the uh, first podcast made entirely inside a prison. Uh it was made in uh San Quentin um state prison in California and they uh their popularity has just been incredible. They were a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. And um they uh, wrote a book about their experience starting up this podcast inside a prison. And, um, I was at the same time they were writing the book that they hadn't announced yet. I was, uh, having an art exhibition where my theme was people who made the most of their time in prison. And so one of the people I chose to draw was Erlon Woods, who was the co-host. He was the person inside prison. And then a volunteer, Nigel Poor, uh, came into the prison to help him make it. And so it was the two of them essentially. And another man named Antoine Williams, who's a prisoner. And, um, I um I yeah so I tagged Olon in this uh picture on Instagram as part of my art exhibition and um he uh replied and said oh this is this is great work man we've actually been looking for someone someone will be in touch and i was i was expecting you know maybe someone would order a portrait for me like you know maybe a friend of his wanted to order a portrait and then the next day i got an email from penguin offering me the col- uh, contract to illustrate their book and my artworks for that that are now on display in san francisco so now i'm a internationally exhibited ar- artist because i you know t- uh take someone on instagram but it was just relevant it was the right place and time yeah yeah, yeah
1: amazing
2: (laughs) yeah what a great story um
0: yeah so i guess we should probably uh rewind a little bit and let you tell (laughs) us a bit about yourself um
2: and kind of what's led to you being here today and what you're doing yeah so it's uh, always uh interesting like picking where to start uh with these things but i guess i'll start about um About eight years ago, um, I was in a relationship at the time and my partner at the time, um, she was... uh, uh a a little bit down uh going through a rough patch and, and and i asked her what was wrong and she said she felt comfortable enough with me to share something that she'd never told anyone before and that was that she'd been historically uh sexually assaulted and i mean she was doing the right thing she was trying to reach out to someone unfortunately um i had 20 years of um of trauma Uh, about being abused myself and not being believed about it so when she told me that she's unintentionally re-traumatized me i've had a complete breakdown and in my like rage and confusion uh, like i've um this is the oversimplified by the way but i've i've Mm basically uh decided to go attack um the guy she said who did that uh, to her and um again oversimplified but he wasn't home and I, but i was there and i was angry and i made the on the spot the decision to set fire to his house um the whole place burnt down nobody was injured and uh not surprisingly that gets you in a little bit of trouble so i uh, i um i found myself uh uh long process uh like they didn't know what to do with me for a while i was um originally assessed for a What's called an intensive corrections order, which is a way to serve your sentence in the community. But um, long story short, again, uh, I was denied, I was found unsuitable for that on the grounds that um, I had a disability, um, or rather because um, probation and parole couldn't cater the community sentence to someone who had a disability, which left them with uh, no choice to send me to prison. So um, I ended up being sent to prison for 10 months and um, yeah, it's completely changed my life. Um, Unlike most people, it's changed mine for the better, but yeah, there's definitely a few talking points from there. So I might give you a chance Mm. to see which uh, rabbit hole you want to go down.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, so, So you mentioned that you had a disability, which sort of excluded you from the... You know, community corrections program as opposed to a custodial sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, are you happy to share
2: a bit about your disability and, and how? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, in some sense, I, I don't really consider a disability, just legally, it is one. So um, I have um, been diagnosed with high functioning autism, and uh, my forensic uh, psychiatrist said that I needed um regular therapy with somebody who specialized in that condition specifically and unfortunately for me i was living in a country town where um we didn't have one of those and it was just a logistical nightmare um i wasn't allowed to uh commute to attend my therapy but i also didn't have the money to move myself to relocate um so yeah i just kind of fell through the cracks but yeah it's um high functioning autism and my um my uh the forensic psychiatrist she said that uh definitely uh, my my offending was definitely linked to that or rather my um oh, well, my offending but because of my uh, inability to understand certain things in the in the world around me and stuff but yeah it definitely played a factor which is why she said i needed um therapy with someone who specialized in that condition okay um
0: so i'm going to make a couple of assumptions here and i'm i'm, a, I'm kind of anticipating you're going to correct me um so you were denied the community corrections order because you couldn't uh, you weren't close enough to a, a therapist that could, could treat you in the community. so yeah, That was one of the reasons, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then the decision's made that you needed to go to prison instead to serve you, your time. So I'm assuming that they must have provided somebody in prison to do that therapy for you. Um,
2: no. Uh, yeah, definitely not. Um, that was such a
1: loaded question. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's in fact like where my life's gone today, it's all uh, has a lot to do with um, my first week in prison where um, you, you go through these series of mandatory deploy- uh, um, appointments. One of them was with um, the prison psychologist. And I told the prison psychologist the truth, which was um, after I committed the crime but before I got arrested, I realized I'm like, well, you know, I, I just burnt someone's house down. Clearly I've got some unresolved anger issues i think i need to talk to someone and i um and i started getting therapy um and that was really life-changing for me it was that like i'd bottled up because i like i wasn't believed when i first reached out to my father and stepmother when i told them i was abused they didn't believe me because after that i just kind of shut down and i kept everything to myself um uh, but uh, for, for 20 years and then i after the crime i was like okay maybe i need to open up to someone again and risk not being believed and so I, I opened up to my therapist and naturally she did believe me and like that was life-changing like i was able to you know finally get a lot of closure and i i said to this um the prison psychologist i said look you you now I um, I was getting therapy while I was on bail. It was uh, it was really helpful, and I think I'd really benefit if that continued in prison. And she said something that changed the rest of my life. And she said um. Damien, everyone in prison would benefit from therapy, but there's no funding for that. Um, See, her job was just to assess whether people were suicidal or dangerous or at risk of escape. Um, It's really misleading, like the government statistics. They they provide all, like, you know, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. They uh, um, release all these reports about how many psychologists are in prison and how many people in prison see a psychologist. But, you know, they don't. Um, they don't include the full story, which is that yeah, yeah, people in prison see psychologists, but only for assessments. Uh, they provide no uh, treatment to general population inmates. So yeah, that um, first week in, and I found out that I can't get any therapy in prison, and so I've also been told that um, because I've been assessed at a low risk of reoffending, not only do I not have to complete any rehabilitation i'm not eligible to do any even if i wanted to and there was also um no education above basic literacy and you know i just finished an undergraduate degree so basic literacy wasn't too much use to me um so uh yeah and that's when i figured out i um I would have nothing constructive to do during my sentence. Um, I ended up finding things to do myself and I ended up getting a very unorthodox method, a method of uh, therapy in there as well. But uh, yeah, there was the prison provided no therapy and that that's an ongoing issue. Mm. So,
1: so what did you do to keep yourself
2: busy? Yeah. So I um, got a 10 month sentence. I spent the first uh, five months uh, writing a crime novel by hand Um purely like out of boredom um which has since been published it's called SCARD if you want to look it up and it's um yeah available through all the major platforms and stuff but um uh, and then i finished that and i um i didn't know what to do because i didn't have an idea for a second book and uh i told like a uh, like a friend i was like i'm like i'm so bored what am i going to do now and he he kind of made this off the cuff suggestion, which uh, also changed my life, and he said, "Well, have you ever tried drawing anything?" And I said, "Well, not since primary school." And he said, "I'll give you my, my old sketch pad; that'll keep me busy." You know, um, he, he might have just been trying to, you know, palm me off, like, "Give you, you know, like, go away, man." Like, but you know, I, I started practicing and um there are lots of things i've tried in my life where i'm like yeah this isn't for me I'm, I'm terrible at this um drawing is the exact opposite you know i drew a couple of pictures and and he said i thought you said you'd never drawn anything and i'm like i, I haven't and he's like yeah and he the, everyone thought i was a liar because you know i just basically i was copying these pictures i saw like just ch- trying to like copy what was in front of me and i and i'm like well, this is easy like yeah, um and before, after about two or three months i had this backlog of um people at the prison like wanting me to to pay me to uh draw like pictures of uh their you know kids and pets and one guy wanted his motorcycle done just from photos and so um i ended up getting like oh there was art therapy i guess um because that gave me something to do it kept me very occupied and um uh yeah so that 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 actually played a um a pretty important part in my um sentence and all yeah now i'm an internationally exhibited artist and um yeah i've been hired to illustrate this book i've had uh, I think six solo exhibitions, um, including the one in San Francisco at the moment. So uh, it's definitely changed my life a lot. Um, uh, ironically, not giving me anything to do uh, <laughs> in prison worked out for me, but unfortunately um, I'm atypical. It, it, uh, most people, it just motivates them to, uh, you know, get, get in fights and take drugs and stuff. So, um, yeah, we definitely need to change the system, but ironically the, the uh, complete lack of anything constructive to do was beneficial for me.
0: You know? mm. Yeah, really fascinating. Um, so there's a couple of things there that came to mind whilst you were talking. Um, one is that there seems to be an overrepresentation of people living with autism in the arts and quite successful in the arts. You know, I think of music and, and, um, acting and then you, you as, um, an illustrator and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, there's, there's examples that are around the place. So I think that's really interesting and something that someone might research one day to see what the, the link is there. Um, and I, I've noted that in WA, actually, they've commenced, I think, an art therapy program in one of our prisons here, in one of the male prisons. Um, So, potentially, there is something there, you know, that, that could be transformative for a lot of people going through the prison. And I know that there's always been kind of art programs in our prisons. And uh, a lot of people who've been in prison end up exhibiting in our, one of our old disused prisons, the Fremantle Prison, which is like a Victorian-era prison that's kind of been turned into a museum now, and you can do tours and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely
2: something there with, with art and, you know, people inside, I'd say. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a lot of potential and, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it isn't used, um, because, uh, uh there used to be a, a really good art program at Long Bay and it, they shut it down. And, and li- likewise, um, at the prison I did most of my time at, which was Gleninus, they, um, they had an arts and programs room and they ended up, uh, turning it into a new cell block because, uh, who needs programs when we could, you know, just, uh, have more, more prisoners here. So, I mean, like, you know, there's, there's definitely a, I, I see some really great potential, um, in prison and that was kind of what what set me at my um you know my, my experience of ha- not having any um you know healthcare or a very limited healthcare n- no mental health treatment in prison um motivated me to do my current phd but um uh the fact that there was there was no creative outlet um at the prison I was at for art or writing uh motivated me to do my current job and that is I'm the editor of a um ma- a prison magazine that goes out to every prisoner in in New South Wales now but that, yeah that again that was motivated by the fact that there, there was nothing like that while I was in
0: yeah mm. yeah that's it's, it's uh, quite a story um and lots of moving parts there and yeah yes yeah. it just goes you goes to show you that you never know what turns life's going to take you know like it's things happen out of the blue and you know
2: yeah, yeah, if you had a told me, like, um, oh, I was a very different person, like, you know, before I went to prison, if you had told me then that one day I'd be a, uh, even just a PhD candidate, but also, like, you know, a, a internationally exhibit, an internationally exhibited artist and published author and the editor of a magazine, I, I yeah, wouldn't would have believed you for a second. But, yeah, it's uh, I'm very happy with how things are going now, and, and I wasn't before I went in, which is a little ironic, but, yeah. <laughs>
0: So just, just to touch a little bit on your experience with going into prison and then coming out again, what, like, how how was that adjusting, you know, from the community into prison and then from prison back into the community?
2: Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, so as soon as I opened my mouth in prison, um, people like career criminals realized I wasn't one of them. Like people were like, well, "What are you doing here? You, you know, what, what what are you what are you in for fraud? You know, it's like you know, I, I was well educated, I was well spoken, and I just um, I didn't f- like fit in that that well like with the with the regular crowd um, um But some people kept asking. they like, because of that, you know, I told them you know, I just finished an undergraduate career. and they're like, oh, how are you handling prison? And and see. I'd also, uh, before I was in prison, I was in the the military, um, which is part of the reason why I was so miserable. It was, I, I hated it. It was, um... I joined for the yeah I thought it would give me something that it didn't that's a whole other another story but um I I was in there and I was used to um leaving regular society and then going into conditions where we uh, where there were very limited resources where uh, you know um where the phones didn't work where we were sleeping in the dirt and where people were surrounded by toxic masculinity where we were and uh, and stuff and and so yeah by the yeah if you um there's a lot of c- comparisons between the military and prison yeah I like to joke to people who, and it's not a joke it's true um like if you ever I think there's uh, not enough toxic masculinity in society. Either join the army or, or go to prison where you'll find just uh, you know, a whole lot more. So people kept asking me in prison, they're like, how are you coping with this? This must be a whole new world. And I'm like, honestly, this is... Um Oh, with the exception of the fact that i can't go home on weekends and stuff this is easier than the army uh you know uh like often i'd be going away for a couple months at the time with the military and we'd be sleeping in the dirt there's not even any electricity and the food's all cold you know so i, I was used to that kind of um living in an extreme environment so that part uh wasn't too hard um what was um what what i found challenging was the fact that uh at first yeah there was the prison gave us nothing constructive to do whereas you know in the army you're always working so you you, you kept busy um so there was nothing constructive to do so i actually became fr- afraid like um people kept asking me while i was on bail they're like oh you you're probably going to jail are you freaking out and i was like honestly no and that was the truth i wasn't trying to sound like full of myself but i i just i i wasn't i've been through so many things in life that you know jail wasn't um didn't strike me as too intimidating but after i went in and i found out that there was no education or rehabilitation or anything like that that's when I actually started panicking because I'm like, I am used to, um, it used to be like a defense mechanism. I had, um, you know, I, I like if I stayed busy all the time, I didn't have to think about, um, childhood abuse and stuff. So like, uh, I, um, you know, before I went in, I was working three jobs and doing an undergraduate degree and volunteering. And, and yeah, so I was, I was kind of working like, you yeah, know, 14 hours a day. And, um, then I went into prison and you know zero, you know, there's nothing to do where we're locked in cells for 16 hours a day so that uh it was there was the fact that there was nothing to do was what um i struggled with a lot at first that was that, that was the main thing for me mm-hmm. and then coming back out into the community like what was your outlook there um i I did have some like anxieties, like, uh, you know, everyone in prison time with like, oh, look, you know, don't even bother applying for work. Um, you, you no one will ever hire you again. And it's, yeah, that's, um, you're definitely at a uphill, you know, uh, at a massive disadvantage, but I mean, um, uh, like, you know, that's not completely true. If you, um, you, if you, if you try hard enough and you know the right people, you can, you know, you can get yourself out of the hole, but you're definitely out of a huge disadvantage. And also I, um, the main thing for me was see I've never had a lot of family um but uh, I was the only child of my parents my father died um when I was 20 and um my mother was quite unwell so I couldn't live with her and I'd lived in Armadale for like uh 8 or 9 years before I went in and that's where the crimes occurred and um, it was just I knew that wasn't going to be a healthy environment for me so, and but most of my friends were there so um, I didn't have any family to stay with and all my friends that I could have stayed with um, uh, who would have put me up uh, were in this the one town I didn't want to live so um, a couple of weeks before I got out as the standard procedure I, I went to see probation and parole and they're like have you got somewhere to live when you got out and I said no I, I, have, I have nowhere to go and I was really panicking and I didn't know what was going to happen to me and turns out if you don't have anywhere to go they're obligated to put you up in a halfway house and um they gave me the choice of Sydney or Newcastle and um I'm actually from Sydney originally, but I also went. I moved around a lot with a, when I was a child. I had a very unstable childhood, but I, I lived in Newcastle for a bit, and I um I really enjoyed it there. So I chose to go back to there, and I've been there ever since. And things are going well. But I had a lot of anxiety about um where I was going to go when I when I got out, and um also I knew I wanted to enroll in a masters, and I enrolled in education straight away. But I um I was a bit very anxious about about work as well. Um I I, I got. I got fairly lucky um yeah you know, I got a few yeah, a couple of rejections that's expected but i i i ended up getting fairly lucky um just just finding a, a like a small job as well so uh, i got i feel i got back on my feet very quickly, but again i feel like um you know I had the benefit of a you know of, of an education and an, and a strong employment history so you know if you if you didn't have either of those, i think you'd be in a real hard time getting out
0: mm. and
1: so what made you um Start to go into looking into
2: doing masters and PhD. Yeah, so um, I it's kind of ironic. I um, like so, I was I did my undergraduate degree in psychology, and about halfway through, I was like, yeah, this isn't this isn't for me. But I was enjoying it, and I didn't have anything better to do, so I finished it. And um, then I um, I actually wanted to be a um, uh, like towards the end of the degree, I I, I thought I'd like to be a librarian. Just something i'm very well suited for and then i've they may be a library assistant in prison and i'm like oh you know what i i actually I, I do really like this uh this um you know so i um but uh then i uh, you know i had that experience with a psychologist where she um told me there was no therapy in prison and i was like you know someone someone's got to fix this and so i i wanted to do uh research on the criminal justice system but um i you know my my undergraduate degree wasn't in something related and I didn't have a um any I hadn't studied by research so I I couldn't do a PhD so I um I um I did the master's to become a librarian because I was always interested in that and um then I got the I I finished and I ended up working as a librarian for a couple of years and then um I was working for a not-for-profit and they ran out of funding and I was like oh well what am I going to do now and I was like, Well, you know, I, I I always did wanna do research in the criminal justice system and then I um I went out to lunch with a friend of mine who just so happens to be a uh, pr- professor of law at the University of Newcastle here. And I, and I told her about, you know, I'm like, what am I going to do now? I've, um, I'd like to do research in the criminal justice system, but I, I don't have a law degree. And she's like, oh, we've actually got a PhD going at the moment where you, you wouldn't need a law degree uh, for this one, even though it's offered by the School of Law. And she told me about it. And it was exactly what I wanted to research. So it was, it was just good, like good timing. Um, Right. Yeah. Again, right, it's the same with the, like the hustle thing. It's like a r- r- right place, right time, right connection, and um, yeah. That just kind of like uh, you know, again, um, like like one month I'm working as a librarian. The next month I've um I've been accepted as uh, a PhD candidate, and um, life's just been going kind of full yeah full pace ever since then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. <wow. laughs> so, what what was the timeline on on all that? When did this all this happen? I pretty much enrolled in my master's degree uh, straight after I got out, and I did that part time for four years uh, while I was working. And after I finished, I, I got a job as a librarian for about two years. And so it was about six years after I got out of out of prison, I um I started the PhD.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so between in that six years. Um, did you kind of maintain an interest in justice related issues and did you have any
2: contact with anyone else that you'd met maybe inside or, or you know, other people? Yeah, definitely. I was something I felt very passionate about. And you know, because I um yeah the, there was no um I was making all this art and writing in prison, but there was no prison magazine um, or like a, or a way for to express um, y- yourself creatively in prison at all so um i I said while well, I was in there you know when I get out i 'm going to start up a prison magazine and, and thankfully um someone else beat me to it which was which was actually a good thing because I was busy enough with paying my masters and my job but um I ended up you know coming on board with her and I was like um uh she was running that by herself it's called uh paper chained and for five years she was producing that annually and i was i was assisting her with it it was pretty much just me and her and then um after five years she uh said she couldn't do it anymore and asked me if i could take it over and now i've um become editor and it's expanded massively and i'm actually employed to make it now but um so i was i was working on the prison magazine thing and i was also involved in um some pen pal programs um as well and actually a journalist reached out to me um she said oh damien i saw like in a in a prison magazine um that you 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 something about you and pen pals like um i want to do a story about prison pen pals could i interview you and it's really funny because before i went into prison i was a very private person like i um had a lot to do with my childhood i just wanted to fly under the radar i didn't want any attention at all positive or negative and then when i got arrested there was some really sensationalized um, coverage of my crime you know that the media didn't let the truth get in the, in the way of a good story and um so you know i used to be a very private person and then they asked me for this interview and i was like you know the first thing that you google uh when you when um uh that comes up when you google my name now is is um a really biased uh, version of events of what happened so why not uh, i'll do a you know interview and um and then someone or yeah the, then there'll actually be something positive about me on the internet and then she did the interview with me and then uh like you know uh, another journalist heard the interview and um uh read the interview and wanted me on her radio program and then i was on that and then uh, not somebody else heard that and wanted me to interview me and i kept saying to people like why do you want to interview me? Like, um, I did 10 months. Don't you want to like, uh, interview someone who did 20 years? And people said, Damien, no, nobody wants to talk about prison. It's just fascinating that you want to talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, well, I, I enjoy talking about it. And I think, uh, one of the reasons why nothing changes in the system or things change extremely slowly is because, uh, there's not enough, um, community awareness about issues that people face in there. And, um, if we just talk about it more and bring more, um, attention to these issues, like, uh oh, hopefully we'll, we'll make some change. Um, but yeah, I've definitely always been involved. Um, uh, and you know, um, I, I, between that and, you know, like, I, cause I wrote my book in custody and when that, uh, when that came out, you know, everyone wanted to interview the guy who wrote the, Right, the no, uh, the booking in prison, and um, and then yeah, that kind of uh, just snowballed as well. Like then, like oh, well, you were in prison. Can we talk to you about this? And so I ended up doing like kind of getting interviewed all the time, which I actually really enjoyed. But uh, yeah, I've I've kind of used like every opportunity I can to try and bring attention to certain issues, and um, yeah, I, I um, I you know I like you know that old saying, you know, be the change you you want to see in the world. So yeah, like um, I um, I I, I was depressed because there was no prison magazine when i was in there and so i helped start one up and uh and you know i'm bringing attention to issues that i, I um that i think are really wrong and that they need to be addressed and uh that's what's led me to my phd as well yeah well,
0: just out of interest what? oh sorry okay i was just gonna i was just gonna ask a quick question about the magazine how, how does it get distributed and, and who and who does it get distributed to
2: yeah, so originally, um, it just kind of like it was a word of mouth mailing list, and so when I took it over, that's that's uh, what we had. But, um, uh, long story short, it's now actually approved by Corrective Services New South Wales, and it appears on um the new digital tablets that uh, uh inmates are given that were given out during COVID and are now in there for educational purposes. And um, so uh, last I heard, uh, they were available to several thousand um. Inmates in New South Wales with plans to um, eventually roll them out to every inmate in the state. So, uh, yeah, like uh, almost uh, at least half um, the inmates in New South Wales can get access to them, but we still have a physical ma- mailing list with several hundred people on it as well. Yeah.
0: Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you, and now back to the show.
2: So
1: why do you think people don't want to talk about their experiences in prison? Is it because it's that traumatising?
2: Tra- trauma would be a factor. Um, a lot of other people would, like, um, uh, don't, uh, yeah, just just want to, like, you know, when you get out of um uh, prison, you know, um, you've got like priorities, like you know, for, for, like housing and you know, uh, and um, yeah, income and stuff, and so probably a lot of people are like busy enough moving on with their lives, but um, and then also another thing is, um, I remember a journalist said to me once, she's like, no, no, nobody wants to talk about prison, oh, not many people want to talk about prison, and uh, and a lot of the ones that do, are, um, unfortunately, aren't very well, you know, e- educated or eloquent, and you know, don't don't can't mm. like you know. Uh, um you know at risk of sounding like an elitist you know i I was a minority in prison you know there were were about six there were about 200 inmates at my prison and um i think six of us had been to university so you know like um uh there's that's probably a barrier as well you know maybe people don't feel like that they 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 can express themselves how they'd like to but um yeah there's definitely a few reasons why that makes people hesitant and but uh, trauma would definitely be a big one Mm. yeah
0: i I think as well you seem like you're in a a fairly rare position where opportunities didn't disappear for you just because you'd been inside um because of your background and your history and you had you know you had skills and education and training and you know a network that you could come back out to whereas I think for a lot of people um certainly ones I've spoken in inside prison to um they just a lot a lot of people just don't have much on the outside you know prison actually seems like a good alternative you know compared to life on the
2: outside for a lot of people I, um, and you know, there's like all these like misleading statistics, for example, like, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, my, my PhD focuses on healthcare in prison and, um, uh, like a bit more than half of people like report that the the healthcare they receive in prison is better than what they received on the outcome, which which might might make you think that healthcare in prison is is good. It's actually really terrible. What those statistics don't take into consideration is that before these people went in, they often were homeless and had zero healthcare at all. You know, so uh, yeah, so some healthcare is better than none. So yeah, was it better than before you went in? Yes, it was, but uh, you know, subtext is yeah, there's other things going on here, but um, yeah, there's definitely um. A lo- Sorry I've, I've 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 sidetracked myself what was the original? Yeah that's okay I was just saying
0: that uh, for a lot of people their experience of prison is actually more positive than life on yes. the outside
2: you know Yeah so if I give you a second to like cut back in there if you edit it later but um <laughs> that's all right yeah no there, there definitely is a lot of people that are, and this is the sad reality is that um prisons better often like what they had beforehand, for example, like the prison population goes up a bit in winter because your yeah, homeless people commit crimes uh deliberately to get into prison, and that just says so much about our society our our prisons are better than our homeless support services and then like a big thing in in women 's prisons is that people uh women will deliberately commit crime to get a break from their abusive partner, and so there are people that um that are like happier in prison than they are on the outside. But, um, that, that's not a reflection of how good the prison is. That's a reflection of how bad, uh, you know, some people fa- have like facing life in, in general society. So, um, yeah, I was very confused. You know, that I, I met a couple of people that, you know, they were actually kind of happy to be back. They were like, Oh, you know, this is, this is mad. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, gonna to get fit. I'm going to get off the grog for six months. And I'm and, you know, whereas for someone like me who'd like, you know, um, uh, uh yeah who like you know for example i um i i know, yeah, i wrote the p- book in prison and i never would have written it if i hadn't gone in there but the funny thing was if i had have had access to a computer i probably could have done it in three months instead of five you know um writing a book i've given an entire one hour podcast about writing a book in prison you know it it is not easy but you know so yeah whereas me i i'm frustrated as all hell because um th- th- i've got you know um I'm trying to accomplish things that I'm trying to teach myself art and just something simple, like getting like, you know, um, you, you, you're, you're stressed to get like, um, hard pressed to find like just pictures. Yeah. Just some, some kind of drawing reference. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, like if if I like, you know, I like, it take me like sometimes weeks to find something that anybody else can find in a one minute search on Google and stuff, and you know, so I, I um, I was very. Uh, I think it says a lot about our society when there are people who are are happy to be in jail because it, it's not because the jail has has good services. It's just because um, you know, uh, you know, in, in prison, you know, um, for what it's worth, in prison you, you'll get a mattress and a roof that doesn't leak, which is uh, unfortunately more, more than you know a lot of people have in society. So.
0: Mm. Mm. Yes, I mean I, I've done a couple of a, a few research jobs involving people who've been either detained or incarcerated and certainly in the watch house I, was was my first research job um that got me involved in research originally and it was pretty obvious that people were getting arrested out on the street so that they didn't have to sleep outside for that for that evening or you know for the next couple of nights um for exactly those reasons that you that you mentioned you know they'd steal a chocolate bar or something you know something silly
2: yeah, and yeah. They, what they what they what they need is help, and uh, I suppose, um, uh, and that uh, they get the help they want, but they don't get the help they they actually needed. And uh, and you know, unfortunately, you know the the police have like quotas they need to meet, so they they're just happy to you know to, to lock you up and you know put you in so that they can you know, uh, yeah yeah, yeah uh, their funding's based on you know how many people it isn't based on how much they help the community. It's based on how their arrest and imprisonment rates. So you know that they they don't. Uh, average one doesn't care that much, so you know. And, and it's just um, you know, there's a lot of people ask me how do we go about fixing the system. Like, well, where do you want to start? There's there's so many things wrong, you know. And you know, all I can do is, is try to pick one. So that, that that's what I've done. I've I've picked an achievable goal, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, there's definitely there's uh, yeah, there's no limit to places that you uh, that you can I, try and fix things. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, my
0: my view is that yeah, the justice system needs to be viewed as a whole, not. You know, not corrective services, not just the police, not just the courts, you know, and our laws and whatnot. Because the prisons are basically dealing with policies from other parts of the justice system that result in them ending up looking after people, essentially, that are in there because we've made something a crime that maybe probably wasn't a crime previously. You know, I spoke to a lot of young guys during the um, study that I'm doing my PhD on um, that, you know, kind of like yourself quite well educated and um and in there for driving offences because they try to get away from the police, and it was an automatic three-month sentence for that because someone had died in a high-speed car crash, and so the government changed the rules to make it a mandatory three-month sentence.
2: If you, it's if you really depressing it. that our, our laws typically aren't based on on research or evidence; they're based on uh, knee-jerk reactions to um to uh, like extreme, uh, like extremely unfortunate incidents, and like you know, it's it's extremely horrible that that person you know died, but um, you know, uh, like. Uh, Yeah, you have to look at it from a like uh, like a community perspective. You know, you you send someone into prison for three months, they'll 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 probably come out more traumatized and more likely to offend. So, you know, it doesn't. It's not a deterrent. If it was a deterrent, our recidivism rate wouldn't be, you know, like Mm. upwards of fifty percent. It's um, yeah, there is definitely a lot of issues there. Yeah, because those are the
0: three pillars. You know, when you when you look at criminological theory, which has has its flaws and is it's debatable how useful it is as as a pseudoscience. Um, is that it's, Yeah, it serves three purposes, supposedly, incarceration. One is protection of the community, one is uh, punishment um, or deterrence, and then the other is rehabilitation. And arguably, deterrence doesn't work, like you just said, and rehabilitation we know doesn't work because, you know, we've just been discussing that. Um, so the only thing it does for a very short period of time, i.e. while the person's locked up, is protect the community from a person potentially committing crimes for that for that period while they're locked up. But as you say, when they get released, that often are unsafer than when they went in. So Yeah,
2: definitely. So it, it basically um I see it as like kinda doubling down you, you you get a respite from crime for, sh- for sure at least crime on the outside they're probably still committing crimes in prison but those things are dealt with internally um but yeah so you, you you're you're getting a like a six month break and then you're like you're know, waging a bet that you know that they're probably going to be um twice as likely to commit more crimes than when they come out you know so yeah it's definitely um i, it, I don't think it works on any any level really uh w- from a long-term perspective uh, yeah so
1: how do you think your your PhD and your research is going to change this scene that we've kind of painted here?
2: Yeah, so um like I said, I was um I asked for therapy in prison and I and I was told I wasn't, uh, there was none available. And um, a couple of months in, I had a, I had I pretty much had a nervous breakdown. I was, had severe depression. And um, yeah, they they told me that, like what, what I already knew. They're like, you yeah, know, look, we can't do anything. The only thing we can do for your mental health is to give you the phone number of a service to call once you're released, um, which is an absolute joke. You know, um, you can't even, like when I was in, you couldn't even really call like services like Lifeline. I mean, you could, but, uh, phone calls in new south wales are limited to six minutes and other states uh they, they might get 10 but i mean you, you can't unpack a lot of trauma about you know uh, yeah a childhood trauma in, in 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 six to ten minutes so um w- the focus of my phd is um to improve the, uh, the health care in prison and um the one thing i'm doing at the moment is i'm trying to get medicare in prison because uh, yeah most people don't know um prisoners are i'm pretty sure the only people in australia the only australian citizens that don't have access to medicare and uh that was the reason given for why we couldn't uh get any therapy because you know on the outside you can get a mental health care plan on the inside you can't get access to medicare which is what covers that which is just like so ironic you know like the arguably the people who need mental health care the most uh, have no are the only people that have like you know next to no access to it so um I'm trying to make Medicare in prisons as, um, uh, available so that people can get a better mental health support. I mean, I don't expect it to be a silver bullet. You know, there's going to be a a lot of issues with healthcare in prison still, but you know, at least that'll be one thing that people don't have to worry about. Um, uh, you know, so at, at the moment, people have nothing, you know, something's better than nothing. A couple of people have actually said to me, like, oh, but we, we have to, you know, um, rebuild the whole system. You know, Medicare in prison is just a band-aid fix. I'm like, well, you know, yes, we'd need to rebuild the whole system, but how do you propose I do that entirely by myself? You know, I f- feel like I've picked a realistic, uh, goal. And, you know, also, you know, most of these people haven't been to prison. You know, have you, uh, you know, uh, sometimes what you're in, what you need when you, uh, when you're in there is a band-aid solution. A band-aid solution might make the difference between, getting through your sentence or, or committing suicide so I mean you know any, any way we can improve the mental health of people is something I'm interested in and which is part of what my magazine's about too you know I, I get letters from people every day saying uh, how much it's improved their self-esteem to see, see their work in print and, and so you know it's, it's those small changes that I think we should um, we, we should focus on on because because they 're realistic and um, because you know i 've accepted i I probably can 't change the the whole world but I, I can change it for some people at least, and I maybe I can change a small part of the whole system and uh, yeah so i I feel like i 've chosen a realistic goal that I can actually make a difference in
0: yeah that's and, and that 's sort of how we connected is uh, I did my honors thesis on something similar uh, a few years ago. Um, but obviously I don't talk as somebody with lived experience like you do. So I think actually what you're doing is going to have more of an impact than anything I could do, um, which is why I'm really excited to be, you know, having these discussions and, and you know, to see what you do next. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of curious because I think mental health is really one of the key issues here uh, amongst people who go to prison. It's, you know, mental health and drug and alcohol use are very highly prevalent. Um, often they're a symptom of, you know, really terrible lives that have happened or, you know, trauma that's happened and that sort of thing. And it just seems crazy. I mean, certain academics have framed it as that um, since we've deinstitutionalized mental health services in the community, so we've got rid of asylums and that sort of thing, prisons have become the de facto kind of mental health institution. It's like the, the last resort, you know, this person's too difficult to deal with on the street, so we'll just funnel them into the justice system and let the prison authorities deal with that. But uh, they that, haven't, yeah, yeah. They haven't provided the resources to do
2: that. Mm. Yeah, when the, when and I mean de-institutionalization, uh obviously, um, that needed to happen. But it was it was made on the grounds that there'd be alternative funding, which, which didn't happen. And so yeah, now like it, it's everyone's just funnelled through the prison system. You know they. Um, Forty percent of people uh, in prison have a diagnosed mental health issue but um the the th- important thing to know when you're you're looking at those statistics is that um most people in prison can't afford <laughs> to get diagnosed so that, that like you know it's estimated like eighty five percent of people probably actually have a condition but uh, you know it's it's undiagnosed um, so that uh, you know i had um uh like uh, i had been um uh, I, I had the money to pay for a forensic psychiatrist for example and um that was why i was success assessed for, uh, for a community sentence and that was also why um my pro- non-parole period should have been 18 months but the um the, uh, the magistrate accepted the argument of the, um, forensic psychiatrist that, um, that my childhood had impacted my decision making and that and I was a good reason, a candidate for therapy for these reasons. And so she re- reduced the p- parole period for 10 months. And I remember as I was being sentenced, all I could actually think about was like, what about everyone who can't afford a forensic psychiatrist? It cost me $1,200 to hire that psychiatrist and i happened you know that that for me at the time that was the problem i was like yeah yeah here you go but um you know like a lot of people can't afford that and and so they would have essentially i i got um i got uh like i got eight months off my prison sentence because i had the money to afford a forensic psychiatrist and i feel like if everybody had the money to afford that they'd uh, be able to take their childhood trauma into account but you know it's uh it's one thing to get a diagnosis of you know um of a mental health condition and to have like some proof that you you suffered abuse it, it's it's uh, yeah hard to prove you, you can't just go into court and say you yeah, know my my client's depressed and you had a rough childhood yeah with, without any evidence and if you you know so if you didn't have like um that was something I did have um you know that I I had a letter from my therapist while I was on bail about how much progress I'd made and how we'd been unpacking my childhood trauma and but and, and again yeah that was something I was uh um in a uh, position enough to like to uh, you know be able to attend so uh you know there's there's definitely a lot of people that just completely fall through the cracks and um their mental health issues aren't taken into consideration upon sentencing at all
0: yeah i mean the, the other way people avoid prison or get lighter sentences is that they have they can afford expensive lawyers and obviously the the, the you know the people that end up in prison often are poorer and don't have those resources and you
2: know, yeah, definitely that, and that's just um. Oh, that, that was another thing. Like, yeah, they um. So I, I was told I need. You know, I had to have like therapy with um. You know, I couldn't commute to uh, to my therapy, and I I didn't have the money to relocate. And get therapy. So I, I my, my option was uh, I couldn't stay in Armidale, so I would have had to move to Newcastle. Now I could actually, uh, I could have afforded to move to Newcastle, but um, I'd actually, u- I'd already used up my mental health care plan for the year, getting therapy before I went to prison, and so because of that, um, they had no funding for m- me to get therapy on the outside. So because I'd already used up my mental health care plan, I had to pay for it all myself, and um, and I couldn't afford to do that, and so I, I actually, I've told people like I, I paid twelve hundred dollars to get out of prison uh, eight months sooner but if i had had twenty thousand dollars for two years of therapy i wouldn't have gone in at all you know and, and that like you know you, it shouldn't be based on how much money you have but unfortunately it is you know <music>
1: So, so Medicare is, as you said, like a band-aid fix for people to potentially get the services they need, like therapy and things like that. How How do you try and get that in the system? Like what what's the plan?
2: Yes. So um. So the first. Well, at the moment, it's it's not available at all because of um uh the the relevant legislation. It's it's uh, re- Medicare is governed by the um Health Insurance Act of 1973, which specifically says it's not uh, you know uh, available um for anyone in in government care, which includes prisons. So I mean. Uh, the first step is is making it available um, so that it's even an option. At the moment, it isn't an option at all. Uh, I do anticipate we'll have some logistical issues um, getting in there, like uh, 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 making it practically available once it's actually uh, on the books. Uh, for example, you know, um, uh, at the moment, uh, just, just getting it in there um, – uh, it won't automatically make, get uh, make the amount of psychologists that we have, you have uh, that they need um, available to to actually give the therapy, but we'll at least have the option to start getting getting it in. So, um, like I'm, um, I, I'm organising a, uh, a roundtable discussion about this uh, in December to talk about. Um, so so I'm very pa- passionate about um, making this happen but for example like um, there are people who know more logistically about Medicare than I do I've got someone who did actually did their PhD just on Medicare coming to talk at this conference and so like I'm I'm looking forward to networking with her about how we'd logistically make it work but um, at the moment we can't even begin to make it work because they don't have access to it so basically I'm I'm doing this one step at a time but um, we do have some things to 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 um to uh like you know smooth out once it once it's available and uh yeah I, so i don't think it's going to be a magic bullet but it's it'll definitely be better than what we have now which is which is no funding at all yeah yeah
0: so what what are the sort of the building blocks do you think of of the case that you're going to make for you know starting i guess with the, the existing evidence and what we already know and then is there any evidence that you're hoping to generate you know to contribute to your phd and your, and your argument for this policy
2: yeah, good question. Um, I definitely I, I would like to at some point. So, I'm doing my PhD by publication. So, I'm kind of doing one publication at a time. I, right now, I'm like more writing about like the history of like how this has happened because, you know, um, the Medicare exclusion wasn't uh, really planned. It's just kind of fallen through the cracks. And, you know, so the uh, Health Insurance Act doesn't specifically say you know um screw them they're prisoners it just uh it's uh, like it was it was made on the ground so they'd have alternative funding and that that just never happened uh it's a very long story but um i i am interested in um doing some research in prisons uh talking because i've already like um, informally talked to a couple of prisoners for example one in victoria and this is just like this is a very typical case um the uh the Prison has accepted that she has PTSD from prison. Uh, that's something that um uh, also that you need to be aware of is that um you know yes a lot of people go into uh, prisons with mental health issues but prisons obviously are not a therapeutic environment it's a very stressful um environment and a lot of people actually develop their first mental illness while they're in there as a direct result of the prison itself. So I've been talking to this uh, woman in in Victoria and she the prison accepts that she has PTSD Caused by the prison? Caused by being in prison, but even though the prison has caused her PSD, PTSD, um, she can't get any treatment for it until after she gets out. So I definitely want to do a lot of interviews with like case studies like that, and um, to, as to try and uh, like highlight because uh, it's all it's all well and good for uh, me to say, oh yeah, prisoners don't have access to Medicare, but what does that mean practically? So I, I definitely want to share people's stories of um, things they've been through uh, as a result of the Medicare exclusion.
0: Mm. Okay. So it's sort of, um, I guess that sort of that sounds quite like qualitative research to me. Um, so getting a lot of the context and that sort of thing around individual experiences to sort of build up a body of work. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's um definitely like a, a few different views we can look at this from. Um, uh originally like um my uh, like uh, my supervisors i was telling them all about all my ideas i had and they said oh you know you definitely have to do your, your phd by publication and i had like several very broad ideas but now they're starting to think i can do all of them on medicare i'm not we'll, we'll see if i'm able to but yeah there's there's a lot of different ways we can because you know there's just writing about um how uh yeah just the general overlay about why we need it but then yeah like um and then there's like you know there's so many different marginalized groups actually within the prison so there's people with mental health issues there's um uh, indigenous australians who are obviously disproportionately affected uh women in prison um have a uh a different experience to to men and they have a like a different and more complex needs uh of so i mean like you could do a study just on women's prisons just on how it infects indigenous australians um uh, just on how uh like uh, what's limited when it's in there because um yeah i've I've been talking with some doctors as well like, like tell me more like i know what it's like Um, as a prisoner, um, not having access to certain services, but I've actually just early today I had a Zoom meeting with a a doctor who works with Justice Health, and so we were kind of swapping stories about that. She was telling me about her frustrations about um, she's actually telling me the longest um, it took for a patient to to get an appointment with a doctor that she knows about in in prison is 600 days. because yeah uh and so she was talking about, about her frustrations of like you know like when she finally gets to see someone she's like what do you mean you've been trying to get an appointment with me for 10 months or something you know and because uh, you know like uh for example uh people who are listening who um probably quite confused by that um you can go and see a nurse in prison but uh it's up to the nurses whether they think it's valid for you to have a doctor's appointment so uh, quite often they'll just kind of like oh no that that doesn't sound too serious go away and so you might have to go to the nurse's window 20 times before they'll get you a doctor's appointment and then you join the waiting list to to see the doctor and so yeah it's um there's definitely a lot of different angles we can cover this issue from and and it's not just uh, like uh, so the issue is medicare is just a part of it you know the issue is healthcare in prison in general yeah
0: yeah and it seems to just be really around resources and you know obviously medicare is a form of resource because it's a way of paying for health services um that are provided by doctors and, and other practitioners so the, the next issue, like you were saying, is if you can get a change of policy kind of adopted by the government, then, you know, we've got shortages of mental health services in the community, let alone in the prisons. So it's like, if we can make that funding available, are there going to be enough people to pay to go into the prisons and provide their services? You know, that's the next challenge.
2: It, it definitely is. And, um, uh, you know, that's uh, the way I've been looking at it is like, um, we... we uh, need to make like you know it, it just an option at all uh you know i understand like there's there's, we, we, there's not enough mental health care in in general so uh but i mean yeah like at the at the moment in, in prison it's not even an option so like you know once we get it like at least on the books then uh hopefully we can get some care which is better than what we have now yeah
0: mm. Mm. yeah that's uh i guess they call it a wicked problem don't they in policy because it's you know it's like whack-a-mole you you've solved one issue and you you hit the thing on the head and then another one pops up
2: yeah and and uh, one thing i've i've found uh is that like one of the reasons why, why this has fallen through the cracks for, for so long is that uh we know that investing in um in like you know um mental health saves money like we, we already know this the problem is that the money doesn't get return to the same portfolio it came out of so you know medicare uh, Medicare's federally funded but uh they're going to dump money into it and the savings go to the state level because there's going to be reductions in crime and so the federal government's hesitant to to give that money away because it, they're not going to see the savings directly and yeah even though um uh, getting Medicare in prisons would save taxpayers an absolute fortune it doesn't go back to that uh, to where it came for the money came from and so that's why there's um all this uh pushback and you know that that's just such a problem in general everybody is just looking after their own pile of gold and nobody's looking at um economics from like a a general equilibrium model and uh like the big picture and yeah that that's one of the big problems we've had is just yeah nobody everyone only cares about their own department and it's really frustrating
0: yeah so in health economics there's a there's different perspectives you can take on issues when you look at them and framing it the way you frame it sort of decides how how it looks. And the societal perspective is the one we need to use for this issue. And even within states, within the same state government and the different portfolios just at the state level, um, gains that are made in mental health for people that are in prison and leaving prison will be benefiting the health system in the community rather than the justice system necessarily. Obviously, you'd hope there'd be a reduction in people coming back into the justice system. But People who leave prison untreated, you know, with mental illness are likely to end up in the ED very quickly or in an ambulance or other things that cost the state budget, you know, the health budget money. So, yeah, it really does need to be kind of a a whole of government effort and consideration. Um, And that all has flow on effects to Department of Communities and Housing because they end up with, you know, children who have parents with untreated mental illness um, who have been mistreated and, you know, then they become... The um yeah, responsibility of the state, and it's sort of this vicious cycle. So, yeah, I think we need to sort of rethink how we frame some of these outcomes that we're talking about, and where the savings are made, and you know how those savings could actually apply to all of these government departments, not just but one.
1: I, I reckon. I reckon if you asked a random person on the street about whether you think, uh, as an individual, you'd be uh, Experiencing increases in taxes if you introduce Medicare to prisoners, most people would say yes. So there's also an individual belief going on there. I think that yeah, people would just automatically think that by introducing Medicare and by introducing health services to prisoners, yeah. we would have to pay more. Well, um
2: yeah, yeah. The, the, there's, there's, the yeah, there would definitely be that perception. And um, and don't get me wrong, um. Introducing Medicare in prisons will be expensive, but I mean, there's 44,000 people in prison. So, compared to the general population, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. But more importantly, yeah, it, it, the savings are like, um are, are going to be massive. So, I mean, yeah, and it's, uh, but you know, that's so part of the reason I'm just, just, you know, take every opportunity to talk about this is because to, to make people aware of that. Because, yeah, yeah, most people like have no idea there's no Medicare access in prison. And then the ones that did would probably assume, you know, then I like, why, and you can guarantee that'd be the right wing response to this is like, you know, why should taxpayers have to pay for this? I'm like, well, actually, they'd save it, but, but you know that you, you, you're, you're not looking at the evidence, are you? So, yeah, yeah,
0: I think that's that's the key there. What you've just said there, Courtney, is highlights the need for greater communication about the actual facts and the actual evidence. Because I think if people armed with the evidence and un- understanding it would say, okay, yeah, I can see that maybe in the short term it might cost a little bit more in the Medicare budget, but have a look at what it saves in the you know, the justice budget and the police budget and, you know, other areas and the health budget um, later on because we've got less people clogging up the ED and hospitals and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, if you can make people aware of that and, you know, other things like there'll be more money for spending on education and the the new school that you want near your house and that sort of thing. But right now we're spending it on locking people up repeatedly, you know,
2: that's... Yes. <laughs> and here's something I, I, I like telling people because people deserve to know it costs $114,000 a year. To keep an adult male in prison I- in Australia, I, it's five hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year for children, and that—that mm-hmm. um, yeah, that in- uh, what, what, what do you get for that money? Um, inadequate healthcare, increased crime, uh, lack of rehabilitation services. So yeah, I am um, <laughs> you know, if, if people are worried about wasting taxpayers' dollars, that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> be angry about the fact that yeah, we're, we're re-incarcerating these people, uh, all these people, and but we're not getting anything out of that incarceration. Yeah, you know, it's that's the problem. But-
0: and what you're getting for that investment in locking people up is that I think it's something like 60% of them will be back inside within two years.
2: Mm, So you've just
0: spent all that money and then that's for them to go back in again. So Mm. yeah, it's, it's obviously not working as, as it, as intended. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah, we've, we sort of struggling to find a, um, an alternative that's politically palatable, um, you know because politicians love kicking prisons and justice policy and, and that sort of thing when they need a you know a a, a headline during an election campaign but yeah I, th- I think having these sober kind of reasonable discussions you know about where we are out as a society hopefully enough people start to understand it you know in time enough voters
2: <laughs> hopefully all we can do is try to like you know um inform people one at a time really that's um uh, yeah, sometimes that's the that's the best way forward. I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I think that's been a really great conversation, Damien. Um, c- kind of inspirational as well. I'm um, just hearing about you know your history and and what you've come through and and where you are now and some of the amazing things that you're actually involved in.
2: Uh, it's been really great to be here, and uh, I, it's um, you know, I am, I'm, I'm really happy where life's gone. You know, I, I wouldn't change anything. You know, it, I had to go through some really rough things to get where I am today, but like you know, everything about about. Uh, my life. I'm, you know, I have a really rewarding job. I have a really <laughs> rewarding, like, you know, um, PhD, and I, I, I was actually yeah, quite an unhappy person before I went in. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm happy where life's going, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to well, what I, what, what happens in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Yeah.
0: And that was our conversation with Damien Lenane.
1: I'm, I'm very impressed by how motivated he is to get things done. Like he went through some, I'm, I'm going to swear, but uh, he went through some pretty bad shit. And the fact that he's managed to kind of pull himself out of that and then do all of these wonderful things from a variety of different areas, like art and science, uh, it's fascinating and super impressive
0: yeah no i agree um so obviously there's people like me that are doing research in this sort of justice health space uh, i feel like you're
1: fangirling a bit
0: yeah probably (laughs) (laughs) um but obviously you know obviously i've spoken to a lot of people in prison um and so i've seen you know, a little bit of, like, a, I've had a sort of brief snapshot into, you know, some of people's experiences and, and whatnot. Um, but Damien's the first person I've come across that's come out the other side. And uh, I guess, identified the problems that he saw firsthand, and has put his hand up to do something about it, um, you know, through academia, you know, and putting pressure on governments through, you know, the weight of evidence and, and that sort of thing.
1: Which in itself uh, would be such a tough thing to do, because If I imagine, like, if I ended up going to prison for some reason, I feel like the best course of action for pretty much anyone would be, okay, that was a chapter in my life. I never want to revisit that again, or depending on your situation. But for me, it'd be, I'd never want to revisit that again. I am never touching this thing. I am not going into justice. I am going into something completely different, and I'm going to pretend like it never happened. Um, So the fact that uh, Damien's willing to embrace that story and then use that to really improve people's lives is yeah fascinating.
0: Yeah, look, and I think he's got a unique opportunity in that mm. he'll he'll be given a platform to air those views and air his findings. You know, if he, he if do people do a Google search, they'll see that he does participate in the media and he does interviews and that sort of thing. And so he he's talking from a, a you know perspective of lived experience and he's obviously studying this, um, issue and he's looking at it, you know, from a a legal and policy perspective and generating evidence and that sort of thing. So he, he's going to come from a position of quite a lot of authority, you know, um, and I don't think it'll be easy for policymakers to ignore what he's saying because he's been there and done that. He's not talking about it hypothetically or, you know, from a position of, um you know having observed it from a distance he's actually been exactly. there and lived through it so
1: and i know that we've we've discussed this before in um previous podcasts but i think both of us really appreciate the fact that all research should have lived experience in it um so yeah. to see someone leading that research that has the lived experience that can really put those two together um i love it it's, it's good to see
0: yeah no it's a fairly unique project and mm. i was pretty <clears throat> excited and, and kind of, um, I guess, energized when I first found out about Damien and his work. Um, so, because it, I have looked at similar issues and it's great to see him kind of carrying that on, um, you know, a few years later and with the benefit of having a different perspective as well. Definitely. So yeah, it's, it's really good. Um, so yeah, hopefully people enjoyed the conversation and, you know, drew, drew some inspiration from it as well. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a story in, in overcoming adversity as, as much as it is anything else, you know.
1: And also a side note, of I think that anyone can do art as well. This is something that I, I talk about personally. Uh, I feel like anyone can get involved in art, including art therapy, um, and anyone can teach themselves. It's just about practice. So, uh, yeah, the variety of skills that he's learned is, yeah, as I said, very impressive and um, we can all yeah. draw inspiration from it.
0: Yeah, and I just think you know, being published as he has, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as a, as a a novel writer, um, and then obviously having his his illustrations and whatnot used in in publications, and you know, contributing to podcasts and uh, magazines, and you know, all the all the sorts of things that he's he's doing now. Uh, yeah, it just is incredible. Very cool. Yeah, so great. Um, So, yeah, people have made it to the end and they're listening to us and they want to get in touch with us to tell us to make the intros and outros a bit shorter. Um, How do they do that,
1: (laughs) Wait, I wonder how many people actually listen to all of the conclusion. I'd love to know. And if you want to tell me, you can contact us on Twitter at Meaning of Health. Um, No, at Health Means What? Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) uh, Or you can email us. Uh, email us at, meaningofhealth at outlookcom or you can contact us on Facebook as well, Meaning of Health Podcast. Uh, so, yeah, I'd love to know how many people actually listen to our conclusions uh, and our summaries. Uh, and also, if you have any potential guests that you want on, if you want to come onto the podcast yourself uh, or mm. if you have any other comments, yeah, message us. We'd love to chat.
0: Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, So that's great. Uh, Thanks very much once again, Courtney. Thank you. And yeah, we'll be back with a new episode for people to listen to in a couple of weeks. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.